0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, today is a deep dive into wealth inequality and the underlying problem of our notion of meritocracy. Wealth inequality is something that I've been worried about for quite some time. I think I first started speaking and writing about it in 2010 about a year or so after the financial crisis. I wrote a couple of blog posts. I think the first was a New Year's resolution for the rich, and then how rich is too rich, and um, it's come up a few times on the podcast before. I never really questioned the norm of meritocracy, however, and I haven't really thought much about the way our system of higher education has become a perpetual motion machine. Of inequality. But my guest today on the podcast has. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Markovitz, and his book is The Meritocracy Trap How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. And Daniel is a professor of law at Yale, and as you'll hear, he's thought a lot about these issues. We talk about the nature of inequality in the U.S the disappearance of the leisure class, the way the rich now tend to work harder, at least as measured by time, than anyone else, the difference between labor and capital as sources of inequality. Uh, We talk about the shrinking middle class, the attendant deaths of despair in the U.S. We talk about the different social norms among the elites and the working class, things like out-of-wedlock birth, divorce, etc. We talk about the flawed notion of being self-made and the illusion that anyone has earned their advantages. And we consider Daniel's proposal for a one-time wealth tax as a way of responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and its attendant economic calamity. There's a lot here. You might find it a little dense, certainly in the beginning, but I thought the conversation was Fascinating. I learned a lot. Looking back on my old blog posts of 10 years ago, and I noticed that in talking about the consequences of automation and growing wealth inequality and people's resistance to redistribution, I asked the rhetorical question Would anyone want to live in a country that has just minted its first trillionaire and there's 30% unemployment? Well, At the time, that was a cartoon example. At the moment, that outcome is absolutely foreseeable. We've certainly been pushed within range of that possibility by this pandemic. So that's just to say this is a conversation whose time has come. And now I bring you Daniel Markovitz. I'm here with Daniel Markovitz. Daniel, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So you've written this fairly incendiary book, The Meritocracy Trap, and um, you also wrote an op-ed in the New York Times recently that I, that I want to talk about that is especially pitched to this moment. But I really want to run through your your entire argument here because it's it has the virtues of being both Quite consequential, you know, whether right or wrong. Whatever we decide about your argument, it, the consequences are enormous, and it's highly counterintuitive. And so I'll let you lay it out here. But you you've written a book, really against this notion of meritocracy, and 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 it's interesting. This word was originally coined in a somewhat ironic or or derogatory vein, but it, it was very soon thereafter rechristened as an obvious norm and so when when we hear about meritocracy you know really for my entire lifetime there's never been a problem with it it's just that the problem has always been that we haven't actually achieved it and the problem is that that there are people who are every bit as talented as the people who succeed but they don't succeed because they weren't given the right opportunities but you're arguing that the very norm of achieving a meritocracy is somehow flawed and that any socioeconomic reward that's based on, on this notion of merit is itself unjust, and is leading to a kind of new caste system. So perhaps let's just start with this core claim. In what sense is meritocracy itself and the notion of merit itself the problem?
1: Sure. So, so let's start just by giving a quick and intuitive definition of what a meritocracy is. It's when people get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than on, say, their parents' social class or their race or their gender. And as you suggested a moment ago, it's very hard to object to that idea. It seems like that idea would give a society a capable and competent and engaged elite, and it seems like that idea would give everybody a fair shot at success. And the early meritocrats, especially in the United States in the 1960s, and we can talk about them in a little more detail later, very much embraced that thought. They thought that meritocracy was a way of breaking established caste orders surrounding heredity, breeding, race, gender, religion. And for a while, meritocracy did function in that way, because natural talent is not the property of any one race or gender or caste. But then what happened is that the elite that was made by meritocracy, the people who themselves got ahead by being really good at tests, really good at school, really hardworking, accomplishing a lot, turned out to be incredibly good at training their children and to have an immense appetite for investing in their children's education. And they now so dramatically out-train and out-educate everybody else in society that not just poor families but middle-class families can't keep up. And because education works, it now turns out that the people who, in this technical sense, accomplish the most, who have the highest test scores, the best grades, are the same as the children of the rich meritocrats of the previous generation. And so in this way, what meritocracy has done is it was invented as the handmaiden of equality of opportunity, but it's become an enormous obstacle to opportunity in the United States today. I want to get
0: into the, the problem specific to higher education and then the process by which people seek to get into elite institutions, because that really is at the center of the problem, at least on your account. But before we get there, let's just talk about the nature of inequality and just what is the status quo at this point, and perhaps we should focus on the U.S. I mean, I know this is a global problem, but within the U.S., you point out that we have a, a kind of inequality that, is, that more resembles that found in a country like India than in, in a country like France. So give us a picture of, of what inequality is like at this point.
1: Yeah, so we have two trends happening in the U.S. at the same time. And I think one of the things that made the book controversial is that it emphasizes both of these trends. So one trend is falling poverty. There's a lot of poverty in the U.S. And if you have my private politics, it's morally unconscionable how much poverty there is. There's more poverty than in other rich countries. But although I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that poverty is the most morally pressing economic issue of the age, it's not the distinctive one. So, the poverty rate in the United States today, depending on how you measure it, is between a half and a fifth of what it was in 1960. And 1960 is thought of by the left and the right both as a period of shared prosperity. But poverty then was much, much deeper and wider than it is today. Mm. At the same time as we have falling poverty in this country, we also have rising concentrated wealth. And the richest 1% of households in America today take home about twice as big a share of national income as they did in 1960. So you have both falling poverty and rising wealth. And inequality has moved, as it were, up the income scale so that there is now more economic inequality within the richest 5% of the population than in the population as a whole. Right. That is to say, the shrinking gap between the middle class and the poor dampens overall inequality compared to the massively rising gap between the merely rich and the super rich. And then there's one other thing that's going on that is also controversial or that I claim is going on that's controversial, which is that the sources of the very top incomes have changed so that by my calculation today, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the total income of the top 1% doesn't come from capital, but rather comes from labor so that the rich have become the working rich, or a superordinate working class. Whereas for most of human history, if you wanted to know how poor a person was, you would ask how hard or how long they work. Whereas today, if you want to know how rich a person is, you ask how hard or how long they work. And that's also transformed the ideology of inequality in, I think, very damaging ways. Yeah, there are many
0: interesting distinctions in there. So let's just take this one piece of the issue between disparities in in work and in capital. So the, your claim here is somewhat at odds with the much-celebrated thesis of Thomas Piketty, right, that he published this book that everyone bought and I imagine few read a few years ago, where he was arguing that because the gains that accrue to capital increase at a greater rate than those that accrue to labor, the real driver of wealth inequality in first world societies—he wasn't focused exclusively on the U.S.—is the distinction between people who have capital, right, who have investments, and you know are therefore you know making money on their on their stock portfolio, say, and everyone else who has to work for a living, you know, at any salary. But you're you're saying that the truly rich here, first of all, they they're they're not merely a leisure class. I mean, this is not an episode of Downton Abbey we're living through. They work harder, as measured in just time, than basically anyone else. And that is the source of the most excruciating inequality, in in this case, in, in the top, essentially the Gini
1: coefficient of the top 10%. Right, right. So let's talk just separately, briefly, about labor hours and then about the sources of income. So in 1979, if you were in the top fifth of the hourly wage distribution, you were about two-thirds as likely as someone in the bottom fifth to work over 50 hours a week. By 2006, if you were in the top fifth, you were more than twice as likely as someone in the bottom fifth to work over 50 hours a week. Hmm. So in the roughly 30 years at the end of the last millennium, the relationship between high wages and long hours reversed. It used to be the low-paid worked the long hours, and by 2006, the high-paid worked the long hours. And if you look at finer slices, between about 1940 and about 2010, the top 1% added, roughly speaking, six to eight hours a week to its average work week, whereas the bottom 60% lost maybe eight hours a week from its average work week. So that's a shift of hours worked away from the bottom 60% to the top 1% of 16 hours a week, which is two regulation work days a week. And I wanna be clear, and I hope we come back to this, the reason why the middle and working class aren't working such long hours is not that they're lazy and don't wanna work, it's that the labor market has been restructured so that there aren't enough jobs. And even during our recent period of very low unemployment, we've also had very low labor force participation. So that it's true that not many people have been seeking work and not getting it, but many people haven't been seeking work. Hmm. So that's the story of hours worked. It's what uh, sociologists of work call the time divide. Then there's a separate story about where the rich get their income from. And this is the point at which, as you suggested, Piketty's and my analyses depart. Now, it's important to understand that both his effect and my effect could be going on at the same time, yeah. and that they, they'd compete only, as it were, on the margin of explanation. So it could both be that those with capital are getting richer, and also that those with super skills and super labor are getting richer. And the question is just which of these effects dominates the other in explaining the overall rise of top incomes. And It's important, actually, to read Piketty's book because Piketty himself makes quite clear that in the United States, in contradistinction to Western Europe, until 2000, 2000, top incomes were driven by rising labor income. So Piketty and I agree about that. Mm. And the only place at which we disagree is what happened since 2000, and we disagree there for two reasons, principally. And I'm going to try to put the disagreement in a way that tries to be fair, as between us. And if we want to get into it, we can get into it. But, but one question is, how should one categorize the income of the very highest paid workers in management and finance? So these are CEOs, top executives, hedge fund people, investment bankers. Piketty inclines to categorize some portion of their income as capital rather than labor i view their income as labor income the reason why piketty views their income as capital income is that he thinks in effect that nobody's work could be worth that much and it's important to understand how much income there is here so in a recent year the five highest paid employees of the s&p 1500 so 7500 workers overall captured income equal to 10% of the total profits of the s and 1500 <laughs> So these people are capturing quantities of income that matter macroeconomically. I think of it as labor income because these are people who bring nothing but their own labor to their employment contract. They don't own the companies they manage. The hedge fund people don't own the assets that they invest. Instead, what they do is they sell their skills. And I have a story about technological change that tries to explain why it is that counterintuitively we've created an economy in which those skills could be incredibly valuable. So that's one source of difference. The other big source of difference is that I treat certain categories of pass-through income, so this is income owned earned by people who own their own businesses, and certain categories of capital gains. This is income captured by people who invent things start big companies and have founder's shares as labor income, whereas Piketty treats it as capital income. I, again, believe it's labor income because I think, once again, what these people are contributing to the economic value of their ventures is their own ideas, their own work, their own labor. And depending on how you look at the balance of these things, you get from Piketty's number, which is that the top 1% get roughly half of their, little under half of their income from labor to my number, which is that the top 1% get between two-thirds and three-quarters of their income from labor. That's a material difference, but just to close this out, the most striking difference is between either Piketty's estimate and mine, so either half or three-quarters, and what was true in, say, 1910, when the top 1% would have gotten a sixth or an eighth of its income from labor, or even 1960, the top 1% would have gotten a quarter of its income from labor.
0: Right. Well m- maybe it's a distinction without a real difference because I mean, it the different norms around work and you know time spent working are unaffected by how you class the source of income. So uh, you take somebody like I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, you know so I I don't know right. Mark. I've never met him. I know many people who know him, but I ha- I have no inside knowledge of, you know, of his work habits, but I would bet a fair amount of money that he works Considerably more than a forty-hour work week, and also his wealth is born not principally of his salary, whatever it is. You know, I, I would assume his salary is right. nominal. It's a lot, but yeah. it's not a hundred billion dollars. Yeah, it's it is nominal compared to his actual wealth, and so he's he's making money based on the fact that he owns whatever it is, twenty percent of Facebook, and so that's you know you could call that capital, or you could call that. The returns on labor, but the reality is he's almost certainly a workaholic and therefore very likely believes that he deserves everything he's gotten. You know he didn't inherit this wealth, he built it, he created a whatever you think of Facebook, an enormously influential piece of technology that has attracted the the attention of half of humanity, and he's rewarded for that. And he's you know part of the system you're describing in terms of the advantages accruing to an educated elite to some degree I mean he he stepped off that hamster wheel pretty early. He got to Harvard and then dropped out to start Facebook. So on some level, this is part of your story I mean I, although I guess you would probably view much of the the success we see in Silicon Valley to be a bit of a sideshow to your main thesis, right? Because you're 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 more talking about people who go the whole route through the Academy and come out and work for Goldman Sachs or in some context like that, where they're not reaping these outside rewards based on their winner take all, one-off brilliant idea. They're actually part of a a much larger system of credentialing and social signaling that becomes this this the so-called meritocracy where people are grinding away for, again, lo- very long hours. But I would imagine in the case of someone like Zuckerberg or any, any other founder like him who, who's getting very rich, they may wish they didn't feel the need to work as much as they do. But many of these people are doing what they love or what they're addicted to. They're not, you know, somebody who's several rungs from the top at a place like Goldman Sachs, just being ground down by 90-hour work weeks because that's the way the machine runs. So is there a distinction to make there, or, or is this are, are basically that these are the same group of people we're talking about?
1: Yeah, no, I think there is a distinction to make there. Now, of course, there are lots of people now who go to work at Google or Facebook or Apple or venture capital firms in Silicon Valley who are also working on other people's projects right. rather than their own. But you know, your underlying suggestion about someone like Zuckerberg does generalize so that in 1984. For example, purely inherited fortunes outweighed self made fortunes in the Forbes 400 by 10 to 1. But today, self made fortunes outnumber the inherited ones. So Mm -hmm. that we've reversed even there who thinks of themselves. Now, self made is a term of art, obviously, but it's different from being Zuckerberg from being, say, uh, one of the Koch brothers who inherited from their parents. I do think that there is an important political, psychological difference between my view and Piketty's. And uh, this, I think, also accounts for some of the controversy surrounding the meritocracy trap, which is this. The capital intensive account of rising inequality focuses the blame for an inequality that most people think is a bad idea at a group of people and a threshold wealth and a social position. That is different from the group of people who are the book's natural audience. So, the people who read Piketty are university professors, elite journalists, management consultants, lawyers, doctors, the the broad reading elite. And Piketty's story absolves them of responsibility for inequality. Mm -hmm. Whereas my story says that them, namely me, us, and the institutions that we serve and that have made us are at the very core of the machine that is producing more and more inequality and blocking middle and working class people from opportunity. And I don't know if that's a a virtue or not of the theory, but it does explain why there's a way in which a story like the Capitol story is quite comfortable for the elite left whereas a story like my story is quite uncomfortable for the elite left. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: And it's interesting to consider what, where these various tiers economically should be drawn. I guess they could also be region-specific. I mean, so what do you consider middle class? What does the field consider middle class in general? And then how do you think about middle class in
1: a city like Manhattan or
0: San Francisco.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a good, you know, a question and uh it actually is a it's a complicated sort of conceptual question and actually turns out to be a very complicated flat empirical question. So that often people think of people as middle class as those between something like the 40th and the 80th percentile of the income distribution. But of course, that varies by city and by region, and and what it takes to lead a certain kind of lifestyle varies very much by city. The practical or data complication there is that there are lots of things in a city like New York or San Francisco that are obviously much, much more expensive than elsewhere. Housing is a big example. Of course, private schools are another big example. But then there are other features of elite, or even upper-middle-class life that are actually cheaper in in New York City than elsewhere. So certain kinds of foods, certain kinds of entertainment, certain kinds of restaurants are actually cheaper or easier to get in New York than elsewhere. So it becomes quite complicated to figure out exactly what lifestyle bundle and at what price it takes to be in the middle-class or above the middle-class socioeconomically. I tend to focus on the top 1% and then the 4% that surrounds them in the sense that these are the 4% or the group that credibly can claim it might one day be in the 1%. Hmm. And so that's the group that I'm focusing the analysis on. And that's partly driven by the fact that that's where almost all of the income growth in America has happened over the past 30 years. So it makes sense to look at this narrow slice, although in another sense, it's a very narrow slice. and focusing on them ignores distinctions between somebody who's making $150,000 a year and somebody who's making $85,000 a year. Both are above median household income, but they're in very different positions and neither of them is close to the 1%.
0: Right. Right. I think we should at some point drill down on the difference between the the merely rich and the super rich because those orders of magnitude are counterintuitive for people and it's just interesting to think about the significance of that kind of wealth stratification. It's odd to be focused merely on the top 1%, but it's, you know, the difference between the 0.01% and the, the merely 1% is so enormous at this point that you're not at all talking about the same thing. I mean, maybe we'll save that for uh, when we talk about your, your op-ed in the, in the New York Times, what, calling for a, a, a one-time wealth tax, because that, that's interesting. So is there more to say about the middle class here? You know, from hearing your argument, it seems that the middle class is, in some ways, the hardest hit here. And I guess, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's, there's additional concern that, you know, when, when we surface from all of this, the middle class might scarcely even exist. What are your thoughts about the middle class before we, we focus on the,
1: the problems of wealth? Yeah, so there's a sort of a straight empirical economic phenomenon, which is very striking, which is if you ask about children's odds of becoming richer than their parents, so this idea of sort of economic growth within the family lineage, that each generation is better off than the one before. Mm -hmm. For the kids that were born in 1940, basically all of them we're going to end up richer than their parents. You had to get to roughly the 95th percentile of the income distribution before children were not almost certain to become richer than their parents. Mm. But for the group born in 1980, really only the poorest were certain to be richer than their parents. And if you look at the drop in the chance of getting richer than your parents, so by how much did that chance fall between 1940 and 1980, it fell by the most between the 30th and the 90th percentile of the income distribution. So the broad middle class, if you think of people below the 30th percentile as roughly speaking the poor and people above the 90th as roughly speaking the rich. The broad middle class had the biggest drop-off in its odds of becoming richer than its parents so that the sort of future-looking hope of the economy moved away from the middle class. Right. And at the same time, the charismatic center of the economy and the culture moved away from the middle class. And, and this is a, not a flat economic phenomenon. You know, this has to do with how much housing costs. It, it used to be that a house in a really, really fancy neighborhood would cost maybe two or three times what a, an average house would cost. Now it costs 20 or 30 times what an average house costs. It used to be that in America, the most expensive car you could buy was a Cadillac. It cost twice what a Chevy cost. Now there are lots of cars that cost 10 or 20 times what the median car costs. The same is true for kitchen appliances. The same is true for meals out, for bottles of wine, for which supermarket you shop at. It used to be everybody shopped at Safeway. Now, you can shop at Whole Foods or you can shop at Walmart. And they have very different feels, looks, and products. One thing I looked into, the French Laundry, the California fancy restaurant, Mm. and Taco Bell don't have a single ingredient in common. (laughs) That's hilarious. Not even the salt. Right. Not even the salt. And so what you're getting is a stratification of all parts of life around this income divide. And the part of life that captures the attention of the culture of the media is the rich part. Whereas it used to be the part of life that captured the attention of the culture was the middle class part. And so that's another kind of demotion, now a a sort of sociological, cultural, psychological demotion for the same group that has taken the biggest hit in its economic opportunities. And that's extremely damaging to flourishing and to politics.
0: Well, much of this is relative, of course, because as you point out, there's less poverty than there's ever been, right? And when you look at what the the average lower middle class or even, you know, slightly below that person has access to compared to, you know, what previous generations had. I mean, you just take something like a smartphone, right? Well, it's just, this is a piece of magic if you brought it back to the, um, even in even the late 20th century, right? I mean, it's just, this is you're walking around with something in your pocket that not even the president of the United States had access to in the 80s or even 90s. And I'm sure there are some technocrats or, uh, you know, techno-utopians who would say there's nothing wrong with growing inequality per se, as long as the, the floor is rising for everyone. And there, there's some sign that the floor is rising for everyone. What, what would you say to that?
1: Well, I think the first thing I say is that there's, there's a sense in which what, what you say is, is even more true than your example suggests, like the smartphone. You know, I don't know, did you ever drive a, a Chrysler K car? Uh, no, I have not. No. So, you know, a, a car in the 1980s, th- those were terrible cars. Mm. Whereas a, a Toyota Corolla today is a great car. Right. Right. It's safe, it's quiet, it's powerful, it's comfortable in a way in which almost no consumer good from 40, 50 years ago was. And so it's not just new inventions, it's familiar things have become a lot better. On the other hand, even though it is true that poverty is down and that middle-class consumption has continued to rise, it's also true that other forms or markers of human flourishing have not been rising. So if you think of Ann Case's and Angus Deaton's demographic work on the fact that there is rising mortality and falling life expectancy Hmm. in middle-class Americans, this is astonishing. We have falling life expectancy in a group, a large group of the population without war without economic collapse, and until six weeks ago, without epidemic disease. And yet, life expectancies are falling, and the causes of the falling life expectancy are overwhelmingly overdose, addiction, suicide, smoking, heart disease, and other diseases associated with overeating. They're forms of direct or indirect self-harm, really. And the reason for that, I think, is that this goes back to the meritocracy point that we started with. We've constructed a social and economic order with massive structural exclusion. The the reason it's hard to get ahead as a middle-class child or adult in America today Is that the system is rigged against you? The education system is rigged against you as a child and rigged against your children. The labor market requires you to have fancy training and fancy degrees that you can't afford to get. And then meritocracy recharacterizes this structural exclusion as an individual failure to measure up. It then says, and by the way, the reason you haven't gotten ahead is that you weren't good enough, you didn't work hard enough, you weren't virtuous enough. And so the layering of this sort of profound moral insult on top of an economic injury produces then the forms of self-harm that reduce life expectancy. And the reduced life expectancy, which really is demographically unprecedented, it just doesn't happen that you have lower life expectancy without war, disease, economic collapse, shows just how damaging this form of exclusion and inequality really is. And no amount of stories of better consumer goods or cell phones or even more square feet per person in housing can make up for the harms done by that set of structural exclusions and moral insults.
0: Yeah, there are many differences in, just take this health Distinction between the wealthy and even the middle class. I think at some point you say that the life expectancy difference between the one percent and the middle class exceeds what what would be true if we cured cancer, Mm -hmm. which is a fairly arresting idea. And there's just there's so many other sociological differences in these cohorts. And when you look at the rate of divorce or you know having children out of wedlock all of those things have enormous consequences too i mean you know divorce and having a child out of wedlock these are variables that are almost synonymous with economic hardship that minimum a serious economic penalty and and also an opportunity penalty with respect to the kids and and their their ability to go to good schools and and all the rest how else do you think about the difference in there's a kind of a non virtuous or virtuous, depending on whether you're benefiting from it, cycle here. Once, like, once things are going well, you know, everything tends to be going better. How else do you think about the difference between the elites, as I think you tend to call them, and
1: everyone else? Yeah, let me just say, first of all, the, the effects that you're describing are sort of so enormous that if you don't look twice, you don't believe they're real. So, you know, in 1970, out of marriage births accounted for less than 10% of the births to women at all levels of education. Today, women with a high school education or less, so without college degrees, that's two thirds of women, have over 50% of their children outside of marriage. Whereas women with a college education or more have only 3% of their children outside of marriage. Right. So this is not. A small effect or phenomenon. And I think the way I think about it is that life in capitalism, and particularly life in a meritocracy, is hard. It's a constant struggle in competition with others. No institution or person gives you the basic things that you need to flourish without your fighting to get them. And that means that success under those circumstances requires enormous amounts of support early in life and deep into adulthood. And that support is incredibly expensive. It's expensive in time, it's expensive in money, it's expensive in expertise. And that means that grown-ups who are struggling themselves are not in a good position to provide the advantages for their children that the children will need to compete in the next generation, whereas grown-ups who have abundance themselves are in a much, much better position to do it. And, and, And that explains how inequality that in some sense looks like it's narrowly economic based on income or wealth can become comprehensive, can reach into family structure, childbearing, it reaches into religious practices, it reaches into consumption practices, it reaches into exercise. You know, 80 years ago, prosperous was a euphemism for comfortably overweight, whereas today, the rich are almost exclusively extremely fit, because they pay trainers and gyms to exercise, whereas the obesity epidemic that this country faces is overwhelmingly concentrated in the middle and working classes. Again, expensive food is expensive, and cheap, tasty food is cheap. And so this is a way in which economic inequality can inscribe itself even in the bodies of the rich and the poor. And it's extremely Damaging to our broader social order
0: yeah, so on some level there's
1: there are changing norms here
0: which are also part of the the problem. It' so just takes something like fitness. It once was the case that you could be obese and smoke a cigar and you're the caricature of a rich guy. now, if your midlife crisis entails training for the an Ironman competition. You're the caricature of the, the super-driven CEO, i.e., rich guy, but that's you know the money can be constant there. We're talking about a, a new social norm, so I'm wondering what you think explains that. And also, I, I guess I don't know the explanation for the change in in out of wedlock birth, but again, that's also another kind of norm here around sexuality, which it seems to me could at least be orthogonal to changes in objective economic circumstance and opportunity?
1: Yeah, I think it could be. I think, in fact, they're not in the following sense. If you live in an aristocratic system in which breeding itself, birthright, is sufficient to secure the success of children and keep the family dynasty going, it doesn't matter very much how the aristocratic adults raise their children or spend their time, because their children will be privileged. Hmm. But in a meritocracy, one of the most important productive activities is training children. And so one of the reasons why elite families live these hyper-conservative lives, although their official ideology around sex is one of great liberalism, is that they realize that the success of their children depends on an orderly, work-driven, training-driven domestic space. Hmm. And so they produce it, and it has actually very bad gender effects within the rich families, which is that rich women earn much, much less than their rich male partners, even though the official gender ideology of the elite is one of economic equality between men and women. On the other hand, the jobs that have been most attacked, most aggressively destroyed by the transformations in the labor market that accompany this kind of inequality are the jobs that traditionally middle-class and working-class men did. And so working-class and middle-class men have had their earning power most harmed and their social status most harmed by these transformations in work and labor so that now if you survey working class families and households, they say that it is important that husbands out-earn wives or that men out-earn women, but in fact, in the bottom third of the income distribution, women out-earn men in households. Mm. And this dramatically undermines the sort of ideology of marriage and domestic life because, it, in a, again, in a gender hierarchical society, this makes it hard to find marriageable men. It makes men uncomfortable in households with wives who earn more. And so when you overlay the form of inequality that we're seeing, the economic inequality that we're seeing, on a gender hierarchy, you get both extreme conservatism in the elite and the breakdown of the traditional family outside of the elite. And obviously a lot of other things are going on at the same time, and it would be crazy to try to reduce so complicated phenomena to this one line of explanation. But it's not that the economic story has nothing to say about these wide social ramifications. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it seems to me we we have
0: a growing problem of social solidarity here, and this has political implications that are increasingly painful. And for me, just in you know private conversations, in response to your recent op-ed on on a wealth tax, this was born home because it, you know as you say in several places throughout your book, the elite think of themselves as self-made, right? I mean, now they're not you know by and large they're not people who just inherited their wealth from their grandfather who was a, a captain of industry. These are people who. Got really busy very early and have stayed busy up until about thirty seconds ago, and they're being rewarded for it. And they, they have had lives, in many cases, even most that you know by any measure have to be objectively granted as stressful, but they've succeeded, and so they are more resistant to redistribution and any kind of ethical argument about its necessity. Or basic decency than perhaps anyone, and so I, I remember. So you wrote this this op ed in the New York Times in response to the COVID pandemic, and you argued that we need a one time wealth tax. Maybe just give me the the potted version of that argument, and then I,
1: I can tell you what it was like to try to represent that in my world. Sure. So, you know, the pandemic is a, a systemic attack on our economic and social life, but it obviously hasn't hit everybody equally. And unsurprisingly, the richest and most educated people are best able to socially isolate, and in fact, best able to keep working and to keep their jobs in the face of social isolation. So if I think about my own situation, I'm a university professor. I've taught online, I keep writing, I keep working, I keep getting paid just as I always would. You know, it's a little stressful, and it's not so nice to be at home all the time, but basically, this has not harmed me personally at all. At the same time, we have 30 million people newly out of work. We have workers who were previously called low-skilled now turn out to be recognized to be essential, still working, in some cases being economically forced to keep working in the face of the risk of getting sick. And so what we've got is a systemic attack on our whole society that only the least privileged are bearing the cost of. And the thought behind the wealth tax is that social solidarity requires that everyone bears the cost, and in particular, that those who have most benefited from this enormous run of rising inequality should now give some back. And it just so happens that if you take 5% of the household wealth of the richest 5% of households, you get about $2 trillion, which is just about what's been spent on pandemic relief so far. So it's, uh, you know, these are round numbers, and one should mistrust round numbers, but there's a nice match between a way of raising the money and who... Credibly should be paying the money out of a solidarity with the whole society in the face of this really terrible thing.
0: Mm. And what's the the significance of it being one time as opposed to what was proposed by the the Warren and Sanders campaigns to have an ongoing wealth tax, which you you know many people looked at as either entirely unworkable or still you know fairly onerous to implement and the kind of thing that would incentivize
1: the offshoring of wealth and, you know, just elaborate machinations to evade it. Right. So I think the logic behind it is different and the implementation is different. And you could favor both of them, but you could favor them independently, or you could oppose either of them without opposing the other. The logic behind this is shared sacrifice in the face of a shared threat or a collective threat. And the logic of the Sanders-Warren taxes Were anti-oligarchy taxes to rebalance our society and increase the social safety net in a steady state, and so those are very different kinds of principles. and And I may actually, privately in my politics, favor both of them. But as I say, the argument for one doesn't turn on the argument for the other. Hmm. The the different logic means the taxes look very different. The Sanders-Warren taxes kick in in the top 0.1 percent. Households whose aggregate wealth was in one case $32 million and in another case over $50 million. These are very rich people and they're ongoing taxes. The tax I propose would hit the whole of the top 5%. So these are households with household wealth over $2.5 million, although it would exclude the first $2.5 million. So if your wealth were $2.6 million, you'd pay the tax on only the last $100,000. That means that the tax that I'm proposing raises a lot more revenue, is a lot harder to avoid, and because it's only one time, you can't plan your affairs to avoid it, so it's much easier to implement. And as I say, it solves a pressing current politico-social problem of solidarity in the face of this, which is, again, very different from the logic of the ongoing taxes. Okay, so...
0: There are a few things that one encounters in trying to shill for your um, noble thesis here. I didn't workshop this among many people, but I, you know, there there are a couple of fairly well-off people I pitched this to because I, you know, I immediately took a liking to this idea. I mean, for two reasons. One, it's somebody's going to have to pay for this bailout eventually. I mean, it can't be all a matter of printing money, but to this notion of shared sacrifice, and I'm acutely aware of the disparities here, but one thing you encounter in recommending a one-time wealth tax is that these disparities are fairly galling even among wealthy people, because just by sheer accident, some wealthy people, or even not-so-wealthy people, are entirely spared by the the pandemic just because they happen to be in a business that is either untouched or even improved by it right in some cases and then there are other people who are are or were quite wealthy who are just getting crushed because there's no possibility of working from home in their industry right if they're if they're making cars or airplanes or whatever it is you, you can't do any of that from home and everything is ground to a halt or if you're you know disney is a fantastically wealthy company and its top executives are extremely wealthy but they have way more exposure to the pandemic given their their reliance on their theme parks and and other real world venues right and so, and you see having some analogous company that has none of those exposures and is is doing fine and so there's there's a a story to be told about good and bad luck even among the wealthy, and to try to implement a wealth tax, I mean, to you start the clock ticking eight weeks ago, and you say, "Who was wealthy eight weeks ago?" Okay, now give us five percent of your money. That is something from which at least some of these wealthy people recoil. What do you? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that you raise two good points, and they're two different points, and I want to respond to them differently. The second point is that they're Maybe some people who appeared wealthy eight weeks ago, but in fact are no longer so wealthy. And those are people who've already borne a real cost from this pandemic. And on my view... Although
0: if I can sharpen it up, Daniel, I would, I would add that some of these people are, are certainly still wealthy right now on paper, but they are right to believe that they, they're in a circumstance of, of far greater uncertainty Than some other wealthy person for whom the prospects of an ongoing pandemic don't spell any analogous doom. Yeah,
1: sure. Sure. No, I get that. You know, the answer I want to give though still remains that the exemption of two and a half million dollars of household wealth means that from the perspective of the average American, everybody who pays the tax is really rich. And that matters. I think. And it's true that some people are not as rich as they were, and some people are suffering real setbacks, but yet they remain really rich from the perspective of the average American. Now, that doesn't go to the first thing you said, which is that there is tremendous inequality, differential luck, and even deep unfairness within the group of the rich, And some people, as you say, have benefited from this. Some people have been burdened by it. Some people are merely rich. Some people are super-duper rich, and this tax doesn't really distinguish between them as aggressively as it might. And Mm. there, I really have sort of a piece of political psychology or political ethics as an answer, and people will either find it moving or not, but... What a, One of the things it means for us all to be in this together as a society and a country is that we don't look on each other one at a time and ask who has more. Rather, we ask, do we have more than is fair for us to have? And I think the answer to that question for the broad group of people that this tax would raise its revenue from again, these are households with wealth over two and a half million dollars is yes. All of us in that group have more than is fair for us to have. And maybe some of us have even more more than others, and maybe there are unfairnesses within our group. But in the face of a, a national calamity, we shouldn't focus on on those and and maybe there's an analogy here actually to to war which is that we we try to have a fair kind of draft in an existential war and then we understand that once you're drafted you know some people get bad luck and have an an unfair assignment but that doesn't give them a complaint against those who got a luckier assignment as long as the basic system is fair and and that's what this tax is trying to do is to say those who are most privileged as a group owe something to society and, and, and we shouldn't quibble amongst ourselves about which ones of us owe the most. And that's another way in mm-hmm. a way which this is different from the Sanders-Warren taxes, which are trying to get the fairness right all the way up the scale at every moment, rather than trying to express meaningful solidarity in a moment of crisis. I don't know if you find that persuasive or not, right. but that's, that's the kind of thinking that, that I have in mind.
0: Yeah, I think many people, certainly many rich people, and even many people who merely aspire to be rich, will grow worried over this notion of just how much wealth it's fair for a person to have. Because, it, I mean, first of all, you're, you're being agnostic as to how they came by that wealth. I mean, there's, a, there's certainly a libertarian fantasy that it's impossible to get truly wealthy without creating commensurate value for people, that the wealth that a person accrues is merely synonymous with the degree to which they have benefited other people very directly in their lives. And the metric of that is all these people, you know, in in the cases of the truly wealthy, people by the millions have literally opened their wallets to them because they, they found so much value in what they produced we can certainly find examples of, you know, rent-seeking and parasitic economic behavior that doesn't seem to be creating much value for anyone, or, or or if it is creating value, it's very hard to discern what that value is or how it touches the life of any individual, and these people are growing fantastically wealthy, so I think there are people who would fall outside that analysis, but in the case of someone who has just, you know, created a brilliant product that everyone on earth wants. I think most people's certainly most Americans' core ethical intuition here is you know that person deserves you know he or she deserves to get as wealthy as they possibly can based on having created that value i mean the, the sky's the limit and it doesn't even matter if it's something you know if it's something you know truly useful right if it's the person who creates a the cure for cancer you know that person should not be poor right and it would it would be in fact it's it's one of the anomalies of our system that people get fantastically wealthy for creating you know, social media apps or, or something that seems comparatively frivolous, and they don't get as wealthy when they deliver the polio vaccine. But if you're creating that kind of value for people, I, I, I think people wouldn't begrudge it. I mean, do, you, do you have a deeper thesis here about fairness around wealth, or are your remarks? more focused on this current circumstance of a one-time shared sacrifice? I think
1: both. I think that the argument about a one-time shared sacrifice and a moment of solidarity can hold off those deeper questions. Part of what it is for us all to be in something together is not to ask so much about exactly what our own share is. At the same time, I do have views about the deep questions that you've raised, and I think they're, they're really profound questions, and, and my views may be counterintuitive, so maybe it makes sense for me to say a little bit about them. And maybe a way to start is just to give an example or a story. I have a friend who's an extremely successful person in our meritocratic society who has a lot of status, a lot of income very fancy job with a lot of job security. And I was once in the woods with her and another elite worker, and she threw a boomerang. And the other elite worker looked at her and said, in a society of hunter-gatherers, you would be a gatherer. By which the person meant her talents did not extend to hunting. Right. And she is treated as an extremely talented person in our society, but she would not be extremely talented in every society. Moreover, an essential feature of our society which makes it the case that she is so talented is that we have a lot of inequality in our society. So lots of the things that make people super talented in our society are valuable only in the shadow of enormous inequality. That's true throughout finance. Financialization arises in the shadow of inequality. Corporate management, elite managers, are as valuable as they are only because we have stripped the corporate hierarchy of mid-skilled workers and concentrated management in the elite. The lawyers that get paid as highly as they do in our society get paid so highly only because we've adopted substantive law and forms of procedure that produce enormous inequality. So that much of what counts as talent and social product in our society, which I believe is dominantly real, it's not rent-seeking in the narrow sense that you described, is Mm -hmm. still an artifact of inequality. And so claims of talent or merit can't justify inequality because they're themselves dependent on inequality. We could have another form of social life in which we organized our companies in different ways. Finance was much less prominent. Lawyers were much less highly trained, less technocratic. In fact, in which doctors, focus less on specialists and high tech and more on nurse practitioners public health nutritionists exercise therapists and we would have as much total social well-being it's just much less inequality and the people that we call super skilled and super productive in our society would no longer be as productive so for that reason it's not that i think that the the libertarian Misattributes skill and effort in our world. Rather, it's that she imagines that our world is somehow the natural or necessary world. Whereas, in fact, the question is what kind of a world do we want to have? One in which everyone flourishes and there's relative equality, or one in which people are segmented and stratified and only those who win the rat race really get ahead?
2: Hmm.
0: There's another kind of libertarian objection to your notion of a a one-time wealth tax, and it's really the objection you hear to to all taxation from this quarter. And it's that the government is basically incompetent, right? Whatever the government attempts to do, in almost every case, except for fighting a war, is better done by the private sector, right? If you compare the post office to FedEx or UPS, you know that that comparison is has been invidious for, you know, 40 years or however long these companies have existed, and they extrapolate from that and say this is a, on some level a waste of money giving it to the government. Now, my knee-jerk response to that is it's really a false argument. I mean, the, the answer there is to improve the government. If you're worried that the government doesn't spend money wisely, well then you need to solve that problem, but it's not an argument that the private industry our private philanthropists, are able to solve the kinds of problems like, in this case, a coordinated response to a public health and economic emergency that the government can solve. I mean, they they clearly can't, and and having a few billionaires ride to the rescue with their private efforts to secure PPE or, or whatever else it is, it's not the same thing as having a government that can do these things well. Do you have anything else? I don't know what you think of that response, but do you have anything else to say to this notion that government incompetence is an argument against redistribution?
1: Well, so I completely agree with what you've said, which is that there are some goods that neither the market nor private philanthropy will provide. It's not profitable to provide them, and There's not enough of an incentive or the right kind of motive for the private rich to provide them, and government has to provide those. But I I also slightly resist, maybe strongly resist, the claim that government is less efficient, more corrupt, less competent than the private sector under economic competition. You know, I, I teach tax occasionally, and here's an observation, I wonder what you think of it that I I often lead in an early class with the students. You know, the average, the median American household, household income $60,000 a year, probably pays, roughly speaking, $10,000 in taxes, something like that. For that it gets roads, public schools, environmental protection, national security, fire and police. That same family probably pays Two thousand twenty five hundred dollars to the Comcast Corporation, mm-hmm. for which it gets nothing on TV. It wants to watch shoddy internet and a telephone that doesn't work, and nobody comes when you call to fix it. That's hilarious. It's not. It's not obvious to me what's the what's the better deal. I mean, it is obvious to me what's the better deal, right? And and uh, you know, if you look at what the private sector has done in finance. It has constructed a, a, a rickety and topsy-turvy financial system, which exposes everybody to risk. If you look at what the private sector has done in elite law, hasn't done a whole lot of good. So, you know, that's not to say that the government is great and perfect and idealistic and always on the ball, but there's plenty of incompetence and venality to go around. And, and I, I think it's actually important if you believe in the public sector to, to make that point. And, and, and see whether you can persuade people that often with all its faults, government does an okay job right
0: yeah well and also I, we should talk about philanthropy. I mean I, you know I, obviously I, I think we should encourage philanthropy as much as we can. I think it's a, just ethically uh, virtuous and necessary given the state of our world. but when you think about these disparities in wealth that we started talking about in the beginning, you take the top, 1% and stratify it with respect to you know the these orders of magnitude it's amazing what the super rich have compared to the merely rich and you know people's intuitions about this are bad enough that we don't really even think about philanthropy rationally or we don't we don't have the right emotional response to it so for instance when someone like you know bill gates or mark zuckerberg or jeff bezos some people who have around billion in wealth, start writing checks, as they often do, you know, if any one of them writes a check for $100 million to some cause, there are news stories that get written about that kind of philanthropy. But when you actually do the math, you know, this is analogous to an ordinary super rich person, someone who has a a net worth of $100 million, writing a check for $100,000. Right or someone who has a net worth of ten million dollars writing a check for ten thousand dollars, and so again, it's not that this sort of behavior shouldn't be encouraged, but this is not a sacrifice. These really are scraps from the table, and these are rounding errors on these people's personal wealth. And just to bring this home to people listening, I mean, for the people listening, the average person, if you ever wrote a check for. $500 $500 or $1,000 to a cause that was, you know, important to you, you know, you very well may have given away more of your wealth than the super-rich give away to have buildings named after them on university campuses or, you know, whole wings of hospitals. If you compare that level of largesse to something like a, a one-time wealth tax where you just took 5% of the wealth, it, it, we're talking about Much more money. And even then, honestly, you know, people achieve a certain level of wealth taking 5% or 10% of their wealth for redistribution once. It's inconceivable that any one of these people would live differently at all by virtue of having to part with that amount of money. I mean, it's just, it is in fact not a sacrifice. And yet, my intuition is that it would be perceived as not only a sacrifice, but just an unconscionable violation of a sacred compact we have, you know, which is you can't claw back the just deserts of of a person's creativity and industry in this way. I mean, these people have already paid income tax in in most cases, although much of this wealth is not not income, but it's just, in truth, many of these corporations have not paid. Any corporate tax, tax yeah. right? There would be justifiable clawback there, but the numbers here are so counterintuitive for people. Again, I mean, you know, when you hear about someone writing a check for a hundred million dollars, that is like a person who has a hundred million dollars writing a check for a hundred thousand dollars. You know, which is nice, but actually nominal, right? So anyway,
1: yeah, I think in fact the 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 effect is even is even greater because once a person becomes rich enough, it's not a question of what percentage of their total wealth is being given away. It's that at that point, the value of money to them as a way of buying things for themselves is zero. Right. It's literally zero. They bought everything that they could conceivably want. And and, uh, in fact, we actually now have social psychological data about how much income it takes in every state before additional income doesn't make a person any happier. Hmm. do you know those numbers offhand? I, I know the the rough numbers varying on the state it depends it depends on it's roughly between fifty thousand and a hundred thousand dollars a year
0: except if this is um, the if this is the Angus deaton Danny Kahneman data I mean the issue there though I mean it's kind of interesting that this often gets reported with sort of half the story being buried or just not even included there's two measures of well-being yes. there right so there's the, the
1: satisfaction measure is different yeah yeah that's right but here's here's the other thing I was going to say that's very important about this, which is that when the super-rich—this connects exactly to your point—when the super-rich give away this money, what they're doing is they're consuming in a different way. And it might be a perfectly admirable way to consume, but they're consuming by translating their money into power. Right to control the world, to make it better as they think it should be made better. And that goes to this satisfaction point where more money does give more satisfaction. But at the same time, one of the appealing things about taxes and redistribution by the government rather than by private charity is it's not at the discretion of the rich. Right. You know, it's exactly the thing that you say, I think, correctly, the rich object to so much that it's, a, it's an offense against their entitlement that the government should take from them. But the mere image of that is it's an assertion of everybody else's entitlement as an equal citizen to say, no, 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 this is not being given to you, to me by you as a matter of your grace and favor as you see fit. This is my share of our joint project as Americans. Right. And my share is not zero if you've made a hundred billion dollars by some company which is organized under the laws of our country, which uses our roads to ship its goods, which uses basic research provided by our universities to develop its products which makes money off of a society and customer base that's possible because it's protected by our army and Navy you, you see how the story goes yeah. so this is our this is our share this isn't this isn't your grace it's our share and that's I think an important part of taxes and an important part of the ideology of taxes that's really worth emphasizing if you believe in them yeah well
0: that, that was a, a line for which Obama was much maligned. At one point, he said, "You didn't build that," right, pointing to all of the the infrastructure and background stability that has allowed the wealthiest people to become as wealthy as they are. And I would also just right. say, and, and, go
1: ahead. I was just going to say, and and you know, that you didn't build that is an unfortunate way of making the point because it suggests that the successful wealthy didn't do anything. Right. Really, what happens is. You built it together with us, and so we want our share. Yeah. Which is not to say you—you're not—you're great. You're creative, hardworking, virtuous, absolutely. But we still did this together. That's the kind of argument I think that 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 this emphasizes.
0: Yeah, and whatever the right norm around redistribution is in general, I think this notion of a one-time response to this pandemic. It absolves us from having to get that right. Let's table for the moment how much we think people should be taxed at the highest end two years from now. We can talk about this problem in miniature and, and a response to it. And I so anyway, I find your your argument compelling there and I'm glad. Is it getting any traction? Did it go over like a lead balloon among uh, the people who had to care about it or what what where's the
1: conversation gone since? We will see. I've had some communications with people interestingly who are drawing just the distinction that you were drawing who were very much opposed to the Sanders Warren plans but favored this one and there are some sort of center left political advocacy groups who are trying to build up a, a legislative proposal around it and, and and then sell it to the right to the right people on the hill and we'll see whether they succeed right. you know the an op-ed is not a place to work out something that could be, implemented yeah so there are lots of details that you have to get right and and you have to show that you can get them right before any serious person will take it seriously so that's the next the next step I believe we can do it but we still have to show we can do it
0: So now what do you think about uh, universal basic income as a solution here or as part of a solution?
1: So I think it's a it, it may we may be seeing that it's becoming the central question of our time actually. I used to be incredibly afraid of universal basic income for the following reason. As soon as this country, any country, but this country in particular, establishes a meaningful universal basic income, the pressure on who belongs and who doesn't will just grow and grow and grow. And the questions that are tearing us apart around membership and immigration will get more and more fraught. Because imagine if an entitlement to be here qualified you for $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And imagine what that would do to our politics. So it's a very risky and dangerous idea. On the other hand, one of the things that we are seeing is that the market, as we've created it, is one, just not adequate to buffering people against totally undeserved, catastrophic economic dislocation. Two, doesn't pay people in a way that matches their social importance. This goes back to the essential workers, who really are essential. Without mm-hmm. them, the society and the economy collapses, and who are also overwhelmingly minimum wage or slightly over minimum wage workers. And so we need to find a way to separate out a person's entitlement to consume and to have a dignified lifestyle from the vagaries of their ability to capture income on the market. And that's what universal basic income does. So in that sense, I think we're seeing just how important the idea is in the world that we have now built, although this question of what it will do to our politics around membership and identity is not one that I think we can afford to take lightly. It's a, it's a really dangerous idea for that reason.
0: Interesting. Well, so there's a political problem here. You talk about the way in which inequality and, and the self-perpetuating nature of meritocracy leads to you know, political populism and uh, in our case the rise of Trump you get lots of nativist anger and the politics of personality and distrust of institutions and expertise i don't know if you want to summarize that further but it seems like it's part of the story as to how our politics became recently so toxic
1: yeah C- can i maybe just sort of Talking like a lawyer here, but just lay a brief factual predicate sure. for for this set of observations, which is the you know, a poor public school, a public school in a poor district in America, spends maybe eight to ten thousand dollars per pupil per year. A middle class public school spends maybe twelve to fifteen thousand dollars per pupil per year. A really rich public school in a town like Scarsdale, New York, where the median household income is over $200,000 a year, spends about $30,000 per pupil per year. And the richest and fanciest private schools in America, 80% of whose kids come from households that make over $200,000 a year, spend maybe $75,000 per pupil per year. So that there's massive inequality in educational investment. This means that if you look at a place like Yale, where I teach, or Harvard or Princeton or Stanford, there are more kids in those universities whose parents are in the top 1% of the income distribution than in the entire bottom half. And if you took the difference between what's invested in a typical middle-class kid's education and what's invested in a typical 1%er kid's education, and took that difference every year and put it into the S&P 500 to give it to the rich kid as an inheritance Mm. when her parents died, because that's the way aristocrats used to transmit privilege down through the generations, that sum would exceed $10 million per child. So why am I saying this? I'm saying this because it gives you a sense for the enormity of the educational inequality that exists in our society between not Just or not even primarily the middle class and the poor, but between the rich and the middle class. And then if you look at the jobs that pay the most money at elite law firms, at elite investment banks, elite management jobs, which go to graduates of elite business schools, all these jobs, specialist medical doctors, all these jobs almost require people who do them to have gone through some version of this fancy education. So, what we have is a system of stratification and exclusion that runs through the central elite institutions of school and work in our society, in which those institutions exclude middle and working class families and children.
0: Now, they exclude them not by any intent, but by surely the contingent fact of what it takes. To jump through all the hoops you need to jump through to land in Yale
1: or Princeton or Stanford or Harvard. Exactly. You know, Stanford admits fewer than 5% of its applicants. That means that if you're applying to college and anything serious ever went wrong in your childhood, you know, parents lost jobs, you had to move all of a sudden, somebody died, and you had to pick up some burden to earn some income for the family. You're not going to have a record that puts you in the top 5% of the already elite pool that tries to apply. So, that it's just, I mean, obviously, there are exceptional people. There are exceptional people always. But unless you're incredibly exceptional, you won't be able to get ahead if you don't have a lot of privilege behind you. And then this privileged class, as you said earlier in the conversation, Asserts that they've earned their advantage and that they have got there on the merits, and that those who are disadvantaged deserve to be disadvantaged because they're not as hardworking, they're not as skilled, they're not as virtuous. And now those who are excluded get appropriately angry and resentful and turn against the institutions, the schools, the professional companies the forms of expertise that people on the outside correctly think are underwriting their disadvantage and exclusion. And a populist like Trump exploits that resentment, and a lot of people on the left think, how can class resentment go with Trump rather than against him, given that he was born to a massive inheritance? And the answer is, yeah, he inherited a lot of money, he is not part of this system of training, education, and professional certification that people correctly see as the principal source of their exclusion. It's not his inheritance. That's maybe unjust, maybe not unjust, we can disagree about it, but it's on the margins of our society. Whereas all the doctors and lawyers and bankers and CEOs and elite managers who are training their kids like nobody else can and getting them into the best schools and buying houses in the best neighborhoods and getting them into the best colleges, that's the system that is keeping most Americans down. And so the populist resentment turns against it, in some sense, accurately. So what is the alternative to meritocracy? Well, it can't be aristocracy and a caste system based on breeding or on race or on gender. That's, I think, important to say out up front. This, you know, if this is a a going concern as a social and political project, it can't be backward looking. It has to be forward looking.
0: Let me just put a few more pieces in play here. So, if we continue to want, as we do, to make breakthroughs on a hundred fronts with respect to specialized knowledge and technology, and you know, just human ingenuity and creativity. Now, granted, this this landscape is continually shifting, and therefore we're continually finding ourselves reprioritizing certain human skills, but it doesn't seem to me in the cards that we will no longer care about differences in human skill. And many of these skills require lots of training to develop. I mean, people have natural capacities, undoubtedly, but then there's you know, an, an immense contribution of culture and education to develop these capacities. And these capacities get differentially rewarded. You know, as you say, it used to be that if you could throw a boomerang and not kill one of your friends in the process, yeah, yeah, exactly. you're going to be much or yourself. prized. But now, you know, if you can code, you uh, more or less have a guaranteed path to at least some wealth. And, you know, maybe that'll change. In fact, you know, if we get AI in the near term that codes better than any person, well, then all of a sudden those those apes will be no longer valued for their abilities and they'll have to pivot to something else. But it is, in fact, true that there's a constellation of cognitive abilities and kind of attendant personality qualities you know the things like you know conscientiousness that are you know part of the seemingly necessary toolkit to function in the technological society of that we have built and and are continuing to build and yes there's an outsized reward going to being in the far end of the distribution with respect to those qualities and not so much with respect to sheer physical strength or something else that would have been the most valuable characteristic you could have found in another context. And again, this is, is always shifting. And it may in fact be that 20 years from now, the ability to be a, a a great actor will be, you know, far more valuable than being a great technologist of any sort, because you know, we will have produced algorithms that beat us on in every one of those chess games. But now we could easily create a list of The things you want or would wish you had if you wanted to just add value to the machine here, and those are going to be rewarded disparately with respect to all possible dolings of resources to people. Are you envisioning an alternative to that? Just who should get into the best college to study X when only a certain number of people can study X there and X is unambiguously valuable to more or less everyone?
1: Right. I think that's exactly the right question to ask. And the answer is that we need to be clear-eyed and deliberate about just which skills, what kinds of training, with what degree of eliteness or exclusivity or intensity really are in the general interest. So, you know, we've had enormously rising economic inequality over the past 50 years. We have not had a lot of economic growth. We've not had a lot of increase in productivity, what economists call total factor productivity, which is a measure Mm -hmm. of technological innovation. We've done a lot worse on those measures, actually, than we did between 1950 and 1970.
0: Yeah, this is going to be very counterintuitive for some people because the bright, shiny object of Silicon Valley is distracting, so maybe you could say a little bit more about that.
1: You see it. It's Silicon Valley. It's finance. You see certain forms of seemingly rapid technological advancement, but these are not places that necessarily produce an enormous amount of increased social well-being or growth. And so what we need is a careful, deliberate, Eye to what kinds of skills our society needs. Let me give some examples of this idea to sort of answer your question, starting with ones that I think are easy for me and ending at ones that are hardest for me, just to be fair. So the easy ones are fields like law and finance. We've had enormous innovation in law and finance, set aside Silicon Valley, derivatives, securitization. But there is No, Literally, no evidence that our super-skilled, super-elite financial sector produces any increase in economic productivity or well-being for the society. It's interesting, people don't realize that from 1950 to 1970, finance was neither better paid nor better educated than the rest of the economy, Mm -hmm. whereas today... It sucks up the most educated people in the society and pays them vast amounts. Law is the same. If you look at other countries' legal systems, a system like Germany has much less elite or competitive legal education and lawyering, but produces more effective justice at a lower cost. So there are some fields where what we're doing is we're creating intense training, genuine expertise, enormous innovation. But the innovation is just producing greater private wealth for the people who have the skills rather than a greater social product. I think that's true in management also, and we could talk about it. But the hardest case for me is a case like medicine, because surely medical innovations produced by super trained, super creative people cure diseases, make us all better off. And of course they do. But even there, our system of meritocratic, hierarchical, exclusive training. Leaves a lot of social good on the table. So take heart health as an example. Very well trained, very brilliant doctors and scientists have figured out how to transplant hearts, how to build an artificial heart. But here are some things we don't know about heart health. We don't know whether it's better for your heart over the long run to exercise really intensively for one hour once a week moderately for half an hour, three times a week, or just always to walk and to take the stairs? We don't know the answer to that question. Hmm. If we did know the answer to that question, and if we knew how to train people to do whatever is optimal, that would be a lot better for our population's heart health than the ability to transplant hearts for the very small number of people who get access to the heart and the surgeon. And to deliver health care on the second model, we'd need an army of public health workers, nurse practitioners, exercise therapists, dietitians to help people live healthier lives. But we're not training those people, and we're not paying those people. And we're instead concentrating our resources in the most elite sector of the education. And I don't mean to deny that in the medical case, those super elite workers produce real social value. I think that they do. In the finance and law case, I'm not so sure that they do. But in the medicine case, I think that they do. But it's not clear that that's the best way to spend our training resources or our medical dollars. And so we might do much better by massively investing in an expansion of education for many, many, many more people you know, between 1970 and 2000 or so, maybe 1990, we incredibly dramatically increased the share of Americans with college degrees. We've stopped increasing that share. Instead, what we're doing is we're concentrating our education resources more and more intensively on a narrower and narrower elite. And I Mm. don't think that's optimal, even if innovation is in general a good thing. So that's the kind of answer I'd give. And and obviously, to get this right, you have to get the details right. You have to go case by case. You have to focus on sectors and industries and degrees and schools and, and really work this through. But it did take us 50 years to get from the mid-century system to the hyper-stratified meritocracy that we have now. And so it will take us a long time, even if we really muster the will to do it, to unwind that and to get to a fairer and, I think, also more efficient. Form of education and work. Okay, well, let's just take a university eye view of this problem.
0: So, if you had complete control over one of the nation's best universities, you know, Yale, Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, you know, just take anything in the top 10 and you could just decide to change their policies. Let's start at admission, right? So, take the SAT. What weight do we put on a test like the SAT?
1: Yeah. So, I'm not a big fan of the SAT as, a, as an admissions criterion. I don't think it, it, it is the part of the application process that I think is in fact most responsive to parental resources and privilege. So I would downplay or eliminate it or use it instead as a way of identifying able and high achieving students from circumstances that are not as privileged by, for example, comparing an applicant's SAT score to the other SAT scores of similarly situated applicants or something like that. Right. But, but what I would really do is something much more radical, which is this. If you look at the Ivy League, it spends almost twice as much per pupil per year today as it did in 2000. It's important to say that again. The Ivy League today spends about twice as much per pupil per year as it did in 2000 when it was already a pretty gold-plated education. Mm-hmm. So there is no reason why the Ivy League can't educate twice as many students. And there's no reason why it can't take the bulk of the new students that it educates from outside of the elite so that its student body comes more nearly to resemble the socioeconomic distribution of the country as a whole.
0: And Except if reducing the socioeconomic status or increasing the footprint there of the student body is synonymous with now admitting students who can't perform as well by whatever previous meritocratic calculus we were using i mean one doesn't put people in educational circumstances they are likely to fail in or reduce the standards of performance within the institution itself such that no one is getting the same education they used to get at harvard say and Isn't it also devaluing the credentialing slash social signaling aspect of uh, getting a degree from one of these institutions, which one could argue is really the the truly scarce resource there? You know, you can read the great books without ever getting a degree and you can know you've read them, but we put a lot on the difference between between doing it yourself and, and doing it at Harvard.
1: Sure sure so on the first point that people would come who weren't prepared for the kind of institution that it is you know this is not a reason not to do it it's just a reason not to start at the ivy league you know what one would want to do is massively to expand investment in education from pre-kindergarten on and to shrink the gap between what the rich invest in their kids and everybody else does we are one of only 3 rich countries in the world in which the public school system spends more per pupil on rich kids than on poor kids and that's simply unconscionable so yeah. you know we should start earlier and have a broader better educated group of applicants but that doesn't totally eliminate the thrust of your of your concern which is real and that's why the view i have of education is connected to the view i have of work which is if you believe that a highly stratified, exclusive kind of education is necessary for taking a small number of the most able people and giving them the most training and promoting their creativity the most so they can then go out into the workforce and invent marvelous things that make everybody better off, then an educational proposal like the one I have will seem extremely risky and costly and possibly self-defeating. But if you think that what these super smart, super trained, super creative people tend to do is they tend to go out into the workforce and invent new things, which are incredibly creative and impressive, but mostly which just concentrate wealth in the elite and don't have a very high social product. So they invent the leveraged buyout. They invent the mortgage-backed security. They invent techniques, the poison pill. They invent forms of arguments concerning exhaustion of administrative remedies that enable large concentrations of capital to prevent justified claimants from coming after them in court. They invent open-heart surgery but neglect exercise and heart health. Then it turns out that even if the system of education I'm proposing does reduce a little bit the extravagant training at the very top, that doesn't make the society worse off. Instead, it redirects creativity at the places where the social product is biggest. And I suppose that's the kind of thought that I have in mind. So to to believe my view, you have to believe not just my claims about education, but also my claims about work and production, and that they fit together. And, um, you know, that's... To be honest, both a strength and a weakness of the view. It's a strength of the view, in that it provides a comprehensive way of looking at our economic and social order. It's a weakness of the view that it has lots of component claims, and if you get off the train at any point, you get off the train, and, and that's just that's the way this kind of argument goes.
0: Couldn't you just bypass? All that is controversial in your view and even even this basic critique of meritocracy, if we collectively completely reprioritized early education and you know all the way up to the point where people would apply to college. So if we just I mean, I've often fantasized I, I have no idea how we would do this, but how is it that we could make the education of elementary school children and middle school and high school kids just the highest or among the highest prestige jobs we have, right? So we would pay these teachers extraordinarily well. They would be very competitive to become, you know, a second grade school teacher. And we would dump an extraordinary amount of money into that system. And on the exit side of that black box, you would have the same meritocratic, standards that we currently have. We might have a separate conversation about whether the standards are, are what they should be, but you wouldn't have this disparity in access to a great education because it would it would more or less all be great from day one.
1: So uh, I think that there's a sort of an empirical question there about how much spending is needed before the quality of education stops growing as you spend more. I think I said earlier, you know, the gap between what is spent in a poor public school district and a middle-class district is about $4,000 a year per pupil. The gap between what's spent in a middle-class district and one of these super fancy private schools is about $60,000 a year, so about 15 times bigger We could, by spending more public money, credibly close the poor middle class gap. And we could improve the education the middle class gets. We could not bring the whole middle class up to the Forbes 20 private school number. It's just too expensive. And and that means that the question arises, are those private schools just wasting money? or? Does the educational system that you envision, in order really to provide the kind of education you're talking about, require spending that sum of money on everybody? And I think it's a little bit of both. But I I do think that in a competitive labor market, there are private returns to incredibly intensive investments in education long after any credible public story about having an educated populace runs out. And so people are competing with each other, to to get ahead in rank, without there being any absolute improvement. And, and and that's why I think we need something a little bit more aggressive, that really restores solidarity, and a kind of shared educational experience among the middle class and the rich.
0: Yeah, well, it's all fascinating. All right, so just a couple more questions on how um, a university could take any of this advice. So when you say that these colleges should double their enrollment I mean that imposes immediate architectural demands unless you're envisioning a lot of online enrollment which gives the same credential and then, then the question is why not 10 exit or right. 100 exit if it's going to be online right.
1: So on the architecture they're starting to do it actually you know Princeton and Yale are, are building more colleges and dorms and, and growing their classes. They've done it before. when Yale went co-ed in 1970, 1969, it dramatically increased the size of its class. So it's doable. These are wealthy institutions. It's not something that they can do on a dime or in six weeks, but over the course of a half a decade, they could do it and they could do it and have teachers teach more students. you know this is not a proposal that's particularly popular in the faculty lounge but there's no reason why i should get to live the rarefied life that i do so it's doable on the online side i'm a bit of a skeptic about online education although my experience teaching online now during the pandemic has has made me refine my skepticism i used to think you needed to be in the same place to be successful i no longer think that but i do think that you need close attention between the professor and students. The the thing I think that makes me able to educate my students is that I read their work product closely. And I could read twice as much student work product and my job would be less cushy, but it would be completely doable. But I couldn't read a hundred times as much student work product and have conversations with them. It's an interesting thing about education. Which is that we really haven't figured out a good way to deliver understanding except through close intellectual engagement of the sort you and I are having now. Yeah. One conversation at a time. And I think that's the model. And, and that limits our ability to provide education, you know, scaled up times 100 or 1000. But I don't think it limits our ability to provide education doubled. And if we doubled the enrollment of our universities, not just the most elite ones, but all the way down the hierarchy and made the gaps in the hierarchy less big, we would have a much better educated, more secure, and more economically productive society. Well, so I'm guessing it's a simple answer to the
0: question about what to do with legacy admissions. We get rid of them, right?
1: I'm against them. Yeah, I think that those are, in my view, just unconscionable, especially given the fact that rich graduates of these colleges have all these other ways of already advantaging their children.
0: But then practically speaking, isn't this expected to be disastrous for fundraising? I mean, I got to think that's why it's not already the norm at these colleges.
1: You know, it's interesting Legacy admissions have become less prominent in these colleges over the past decades. They're more prominent than I think moral decency allows, but they're less prominent than they used to be.
0: By less prominent you mean the percentage of who get admitted? No,
1: though no, this is the really interesting phenomenon, which is the the benefit that being a legacy gives you has gotten smaller. But at the same time, the concentration of children of rich parents who go there has gone up and that's because the elite is finding all these other ways to advantage its children. right and and you know I should say these colleges, on the fundraising side, if you take the 10 biggest university endowments in America and look at their growth over the past 30 or 40 years and just extend that growth train out into the future, and you look at. US household wealth over the past 30 or 40 years and extend its growth out into the future, sometime in the 22nd century, those 10 universities would own all of America. So it's not that they're hurting financially.
0: I'm going to guess that's not going to happen. So something else is going to happen.
1: And I think that, that the pitch, if one's talking to university administrators and you have something like my view, you exactly say that's not going to happen. So that the path that you think you want to be on, which is one of maintaining your exclusivity, maintaining your wealth, maintaining your very small number of students will be cut off by something. And the question is, is it cut off by something that's consistent with your values of an educated, open, fair society? Or is it cut off by something else? And you have an ability now to act in the service of your values by becoming less exclusive and more fair, and so you should seize it while you can. That's the kind of argument I think that, that universities could, over time, be moved by.
0: What about the tax-exempt status of schools?
1: So my view is that in a world in which they're this rich and educate overwhelmingly rich kids, you know, while it's not true that 80% of the students at Yale had parents who went to Yale, it is true that a very high percentage of the students at Yale had parents who went to one of another small set of elite colleges, so that the set of elite universities as a whole functions as a club, and it functions as a club for the rich. And as long as it functions in that way, it shouldn't be taxed as a charity. That's a huge subsidy. And and just to give you a sense of the size of the subsidy, somebody calculated recently that Princeton University's tax exemption amounted to a public subsidy to Princeton of $100,000 per student per year. Mm. And compare that to a public subsidy to the State University of New Jersey at Rutgers, of about twelve thousand five hundred per student per year, and a public subsidy to Essex County Community College of about twenty five hundred dollars per student per year. So the super rich kids at Princeton get a public subsidy forty times as big as the middle and working class kids at Essex County Community College. It's very hard to see how that's fair.
2: Mm.
0: Well, so Daniel, what do you think is going to transform our thinking on this topic and actually lead to? Change on the ground, I mean do you think it's a matter of persuading the elites that this change has to happen you know if only through a self-serving lens that the pitchforks are coming and they actually need to get on the right side of history before they're dragged onto it, or do you think this change is going to come before the elites are bought in?
1: I think that there there are three forces. one is relatively new. I would not underestimate the political importance of the recognition of who is an essential worker in the pandemic, Mm. both for the rest of society to realize who's really essential and, and that those who are essential are not getting paid. And within the group of essential workers, we're seeing more systematic labor activism now than we've seen in a long time. So I think that's going to be a potent political force for some time. Second, young people in general are much less wedded to the meritocratic system than their parents were, because for their parents' generation, meritocracy meant the fight against racism and sexism and homophobia. Powerfully, it meant people should be admitted regardless of their identity, and it meant an energetic and vibrant elite that would make each generation richer than than the one before it. Whereas for young people today, meritocracy means structural exclusion. I can't get into the school or college I want and jobs are disappearing. And so young people are much more engaged and much more clear-eyed, I think, about what's going on than older people. And finally, I think elites will come around and partly it's fear of the pitchforks but another part of it, and this is not something we spend a lot of time talking about, but the book spends some time on, is that meritocratic competition means that having rich parents is almost a necessary condition for getting ahead, but it's not close to a sufficient condition. Right. And elite kids are trained and tested and supervised and surveilled, and they jump through hoops their whole lives, and they're constantly frightened of losing the race and being excluded. And then they finally graduate from Harvard Business School or Yale Law School, and they take a job at Goldman Sachs or at Cravath, Swain & Moore, and they work 90 hours a week, and they're frightened that they're going to get fired or are not going to make partner. And then they make partner, and they still have to work 90 hours a week. And their kids are now in the position they were in, and they're terrified as parents that their kids are going to lose caste. And at the same time, they're so rich that if they Could take the trade between, you know, give up a third of their income in exchange for getting out of the rat race, they'd be so much better off. And and so I think elites are also beginning to realize that this system doesn't serve them well, partly because they're afraid of the populist mob, but partly because they realize that they're afraid of each other and what they're doing to themselves. And if they can be shown a coordinated path of sort of mutual disarmament, that would make the whole society better off, that would be in their interest also. So I think Mm -hmm. they have reason to be open to this, and maybe it's optimistic, but I tend to think if people have reason to do something, it increases the chance that they'll do it.
0: It's interesting. As I'm having this conversation with you, and I'm I'm imagining how listeners will perceive this argument and listeners in in various economic situations, I can't help but feel that there's, there's a concern, personally I can own this as well, that there's a concern about personal hypocrisy here. So, I, Like one thing, whenever I've argued about the importance of wealth inequality, I've often been hit with the charge, well if you want to give more of your money to the government you're free to do that, right? Of course you can just cut you know an extra check to the treasury if you're so concerned that there's not enough money in the system. But the reason why that is a bizarre rejoinder and actually isn't teasing out real hypocrisy on on my side or on the side of anyone who would argue that wealth inequality is a problem is that no one wants to make a pointless and unshared sacrifice it seems to me that someone could agree with everything you've said and still be motivated to pay the minimum tax that they legally can when tax time rolls around and yet i think many people Their discomfort with all of this is somewhere in this area where there's personal hypocrisy or at least the perception of it lurking in the background. These are all fine words, but, you know, how much money are you actually giving away? And part of it is a, I think there's a failure of imagination around what you just described, which is a, if the playing field itself or the game itself changes so that everyone is now exposed to a new set of norms and a new set of expectations that changes how any specific change in a person's individual circumstance will be perceived, right? And this is somewhat inchoate a concern, but I just feel like there there is something different about it happening at the level of the system than one individual being impressed by the the ethical argument here and then having to grapple with their individual response to it.
1: So I I think I want to agree entirely and just observe that there are two formulations of that thought. The first is that this is an argument about structures and systems, and it's both an argument that doesn't try to cast blame on any individual, either in the elite or outside of the elite, and an argument that suggests that individual action is not the solution here. The solution is coordinated public policy. And so in that sense, the thing to do is to agitate politically insofar as we act politically for a better set of policies, for a better set of educational policies, for a better set of labor market policies, for a fairer tax system, and and so on. And there's no inconsistency in thinking, I want these policies for all of us but I'm not going to act unilaterally, to act as if they were there when they're not there. Right. So that's that's one version of this. But I think there's also another version of this, which is sort of a similar kind of argument, just in the sort of individual conscience or realm of the individual mind and thought, which is just to say, and I'll just admit this for me, You know, I, I'm a product of this system. I'm an agent of this system, so I benefited enormously from having professional parents. I, I went to Public school, but I have professional parents and uh, having fancy degrees, and I now educate elite kids. And it's no part of this argument, either in the book or the conversation that we've been having, to hold myself out as an ideal of generosity or honor or altruism. Rather, It's an argument that makes a series of claims about what the economy is like, what our society is like, how things work to decide who gets ahead and who doesn't, and the social and individual costs of the inequality that we have. And those stand or fall totally apart from whoever is saying them at the moment. So, in that sense, I think that the charge to be levied against someone like me is is a charge of immorality, but not hypocrisy. Mm. That is to say, I'm in this system, I'm no better or worse than anybody else in the system, and if you think the position that I have is undeserved and culpable, you may well be right, but you can think that because you agree with my argument. Not you're thinking that about me undermines my argument. Right, right.
0: Well, it's fascinating, Daniel, and this problem, needless to say, is not going away anytime soon. And 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 may, I think, it will be exacerbated by whatever economic consequences are borne out over the next six months to two years, based on the on the pandemic. So you you are definitely a man of the moment,
1: and uh, thank you for the work you've done. It's really a pleasure to get you on the podcast. Thank you for the conversation, which I have to say has been both, at the same time, unusually gentle and unusually incisive. So I'm grateful for the questioning. Thanks very much.